Oh no. Leave me alone! I'll give you anything! You want a planet? I'll give you a planet! Heck, I'll give you your own solar system! No! I'll give you a house in Boca Raton! Just please, spare me! I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What? Welcome to the Page to Pixel podcast. I am your host, Reed Jolin. As always, joining me is my dear friend, best boy, and pink love wonder, Jeremy Ruck. Way up north, say something, Jeremy. Hey there. And today we are talking about one of my absolute favorite gaming mascots and icons, and that is Kirby. Not particularly focusing on the vacuum per se, but more so on the Nintendo mascot, um, that I've grown grown very fond of um, over the course of my lifetime. So, Jeremy, I think we can kind of jump really quickly into it. What are your kind of baseline early experiences with the Kirby games and the franchise as a whole? Um, well, so I only played Kirby Superstar as a child, um, and it was the reason I got banned from renting games from the local grocery store. Um, can you explain? Yeah, so... One summer, I was probably maybe eight or nine, I rented this Kirby Superstar and was enjoying it so much with my summertime friend that I just thought, well, what happens if I don't take this back? And after a summer of playing it and just kind of like ducking the law of the grocery store, my parents eventually got a very... uh, firmly worded uh, voicemail saying that I have to return it, I have to buy it, and I wasn't allowed to rent games there anymore. Wow, that's incredible. Uh, Breaking the law. Breaking the law, Kirby style. Yeah, so was that the only game that you had experience with? Like, have you played any of them since? Uh, I touched a little bit of an emulator um, just to kind of touch up for the podcast, but not really. So your 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 real affection is I'm, for more of the Super Nintendo Superstar one. Right. So, I mean, I didn't have a Game Boy uh, until the uh, color. So I didn't, and I never got Kirby. I was too busy playing Pokemon. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, uh, my experience with Kirby, uh, I want to say it was the first game I ever beat, to be specific. Uh, Kirby's Adventure on the NES is, by and large, probably my favorite original Nintendo game. I know that's kind of a controversial statement because... I don't know. I think there's just something about adventure that is just so compelling and it's so playable. And I don't know. The, it's the music. It's the atmosphere. It's everything about it. Like, I never get sick of it. Like, I can play it anytime I want to and not, like, immediately if I lose a level, I'm going to just, like, turn it off. It's just something where I just love it so much that I can kind of just play through it in, in one go. And it doesn't take that long. It's a pretty pretty easy game to play. And I think that's one of the reasons why I was able to beat it as a kid is because... And we'll talk a little bit about it as we get into the series a little bit. Um, it was just relatively easy. It was something that anyone could play and is, is a very cherished memory. So, yeah, if I'm on a desert island and I can only play one NES game, it would be probably Kirby's Adventure. Uh, I have pretty solid experience with the other ones. Not so much the, the SNES ones. 
I never really got into Kirby Superstar or Dreamland 3, just because by that time we were kind of already moving into the N64 territory. As I might have mentioned on the initial intro episode of Page to Pixel, I was always playing a generation behind because of like my parents and my babysitters not knowing what was currently going on in the gaming generations. So, you know, while other people are playing the new PlayStations and stuff, I'm just getting into Sega Genesis and Super Nintendo just because I didn't know anything. I didn't have any subscriptions to magazines. So, you know, I, there's, a, there's a part of me that feels blessed in a way, but also kind of cursed in a way that I don't know what I know now back then. And I just want to give some shout outs to grocery store video rentals because that is something that I also did <laughs> back back when I you know, was a kid too. Uh, the 29 Super up on the Hildare. Uh, yeah, they used to rent, uh, I used to rent like Mega Man, I think, uh, and Thundercats VHS. So good yeah, childhood memories there. That's the thing that's gone by the wayside because that grew, like the that town had like 200 people in it and the grocery store still rented games. So it's just... Yeah, yeah, and we had Family Video, which um, I Bad. frequented. Uh, yeah, I, I frequented often because it was only like a ten-minute walk from my house. And you know, during the during the summer, you know, there's not much else to do, so my mom would give us money and we'd go walk down there. There's also a Blockbuster, of course, which we always kind of thought of as like the Richie Rich thing. I don't know why. I think it's because like renting anything was like eighteen dollars. But there was like multiple rental places back in the '90s and early 2000s uh, where we're from, and yeah, I, I just have really fond memories of those. And I think that's something that a lot of kids nowadays are kind of missing out on is like, you can just go on an uh, online store, online shop on your console and just buy whatever you want without having the joy and punishment of renting a game, not knowing if it's good or bad. We had to walk uphill both ways to rent games. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, so jumping into Kirby, I want to specify too that this episode is really more dedicated to the 8-bit games and the 16-bit games and then of course Kirby 64. So we're only really sticking in like a, a eight-year, nine-year year range for this episode. We're not jumping into the Game Boy Advance games, the GameCube stuff, the Wii, any of the more modern stuff. We're really starting with uh, Kirby's Dreamland and working our way up to Kirby 64. So just letting you guys know if you're looking for more of the advanced stuff, um, you won't find it here in this episode quite yet. This is something we'll probably come back to because it's just been uh, a rabbit hole of lore as we're about to probably talk about. Um, just looking at these games, if you're familiar with Kirby, it's just like a super cute, super plush platformer in a lot of ways. But as me and Jeremy were doing research for this podcast, we just realized how just insane the lore and the background for a lot of this information is and just how wild it sort of gets and how many rabbit holes you can kind of go down but um you have anything to add to that jeremy yeah i i think it's due to just having such a long lasting franchise i mean what we're coming up on it's 30th anniversary right now yeah we we were talking jeremy and i were talking uh last week about hey we should look at games that are turning 30 this year or 20 or something like that and i didn't know that kirby uh, was turning 30 this year, which is awesome because, you know, the original game, Kirby's Dreamland, which I'll talk about in a little bit, came out uh, spring and summer of 1992. So, yes, it is 30 years, which is insane to me. Right. So it's had 30 years to go through anime, manga, all this other development of background and lore. And I think we've touched on this before where our our kind of a goal here is to focus on how games tell stories and I think a lot of that lore and stuff may have been developed in that back end. 
So we're taking these in kind of chunks and slowly going through it and you know we might even look into how it's evolved over time. So I would actually like to do a deep dive sometime in the future of just maybe not even anything related to games but just the actual pure background before the games happen. But that's going to be for a different day. So at that note I think it's probably time we can talk about the characters unless you had anything else to add. Yeah, I think just to just to add into what you just said about the evolution of the game series, it's really interesting to see how um, games develop, and that's been a, a a backbone of this podcast is seeing the development of eight to sixteen to thirty two to sixty four and so on of how the narratives sort of expand in games, and we're going to see a pretty good example of that um, as we kind of move from the Game Boy to the NES to the SNES. It is a sort of pretty um standard trajectory i think for the kirby games but uh yeah that being said yeah let's jump into let's jump into the characters all right well obviously there's everyone's favorite uh piece of double bubble kirby um he's if you don't know what he looks like he's a little pink ball of goo who sucks up his enemies and can absorb their powers and he might also be a god just a little asterisk there, maybe. Yeah, again, that's a part of the lore stuff. <laughs> you, When you're playing these games as a kid, you don't really think about this, but as we've said just momentarily ago, uh, a lot of the lore has been expanded on in the, in the more recent games. Um, yeah, Kirby is this character. Uh, just to give you some background on Kirby, he was created initially as to be a, a kind of a placeholder for another mascot that HAL Laboratories was working on. Um, and this kind of leads, I guess, into the development of Kirby's Dreamland, which I don't want to get, give too much away, but initially Kirby was supposed to be this placeholder for an upcoming mascot, but they just kind of fell in love with him and they just kind of kept him. They decided to keep him. And I think the character design just stuck. Uh, it's a really simple design. Obviously, it's just a sphere with a face and some 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 stubby little legs and arms, and he has all these kind of fun cutesy abilities like inhaling his enemies and flying and puffing out air and he's just like a really enjoyable character and he is largely mute throughout most of the series uh, apparently as we were going through the instruction manuals and stuff like that there's some actual like narr narrations and and spoken words by kirby but largely he just makes sound effects so i thought that was pretty interesting yeah and i think his cuteness is really what kind of captures most people these all these games in general are very cutesy which is usually something i don't go for but still kirby was able to kind of pull me in in that in that regards uh it, it's kind of nostalgic and and takes you back to, to when things were maybe a little bit more innocent before you knew the the burdens of the world and i think that kind of sums up the the artistic style of this game in general is it's it's very cute Cute little creatures, even the bad guys for the most part, with the exception of a few, are just kind of like cute little doopy guys. And if you look at a lot of the other mascots of the 80s and 90s video gaming, you look at Mario, who has this really universal appeal because he's, yeah, he's he's modeled after an Italian plumber, which is just a bizarre design. But his the way he's animated and designed is very cute and, and, and approachable. Uh, and on the flip side, as we kind of talked about with Sonic the Hedgehog episode, Sonic, Sega designed him to be kind of cool and edgy and sort of emphasize everything that's going on in the 90s, while Kirby kind of mirrors the approach to the games that they should be approachable by anyone. 
and I don't think you could have designed a better um, mascot for something that's super, super approachable. So then we have King DDD. Uh, he is the antagonist in, I believe, the first game, correct? Yes, he's the primary antagonist um, in the first game, and most of the games he at least has some sort of role. He, yeah, from from the later stuff, he kind of turns into more of like uh, anti-hero slash begrudging ally. Um, he kind of becomes Kirby's kind of friend. He, yeah, he loses a lot of his villainous power. He, I, I, I'm trying to compare him to something else, but like even Dr. Robotnik in the Sonic series still had that menace. There's none of the games where Dr. Robotnik, um, yeah, he's goofy and he's kind of a little dull, dull-witted, but... He still stays the enemy throughout, unlike King DDD, which even in like the second game, I guess, Kirby's Adventure, at the end of the game, you kind of create this partnership in a way. So it is King DDD is initially uh, the, the enemy, the major antagonist, but he loses a lot of that villainous potency um, as the games kind of go on and he becomes kind of a, I don't want to say a punching bag, but I know with the, the, the anime show Kirby right back at you. Um, he becomes just like this blundering idiot, you know, sort of character. So he's, I don't even know what kind of animal he's supposed to be. Do you have any I idea? Think he's, a, he's a penguin, my guy. He's a penguin. He's a really obese penguin then. I mean, he needs to, he needs to check his food intake, check his macros. Too, too many mackerels. Too many mackerels. Mac macro mackerels. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then Meta Knight, which is another Kirby. Um, I know they don't really have a name for whatever kind of creatures Kirby's are. And he is another sort of villain. The main difference is he's a little bit more chivalrous. Obviously, he's still a knight. Uh, I would say kind of a less goofy version of like the Dark Knight from Monty Python. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good estimation. Yeah, Meta Knight is kind of like the he's kind of like the the kid in high school or middle school listening to Alice in Chains and like taking money out of his mom's purse. Like that's when I see Meta Knight. That's initially what I sort of envision. It's just this, he's this really cool looking character with this cool helmet slant, slanted visor, and he's got this cool sword. And he, he's a, he's a antagonist in a lot of the early games. And even so he does have like DDD, some moments of alliance and, uh, begrudging alliances, but, uh, Meta Knight's a really cool character. Uh, he's a great, he's a great character to play in Smash Brothers, which we'll probably talk about a little bit because yeah. the Smash Brothers games are really tied into uh, Kirby because, uh, as we might talk about, the Kirby games were developed by HAL Laboratories and so was uh, Smash Brothers. So there's something special there. Finally, uh, the next main kind of character to discuss would be Dark Matter. Which so, is like the Love Lovecraftian side of this. This is where it kind of takes a detour into the, oh, we have these kind of cute, dumb, chivalrous enemies, and then we have this cosmic horror that is dark matter right so dark matter is the general entity that will make up most of the major villains for the other games in these particular uh this particular stretch of games and it has many forms and kind of shifts and changes but it usually is out for i would say think of it as just kind of like this mass of negative energy that can take forms and is just kind of out to consume goodness and happiness in general is kind of the best way I can describe that. Yeah, there's a lot of moving pieces with the the further lore, which hopefully we'll take a deep dive into. Um, but it, it's it's a lot. Let's just put it that way, ladies and gentlemen. It's a lot with, especially with the dark matter stuff. If you just look at it at the surface level of 
the interactions of Kirby, DDD, and Meta Knight. It's a very simple, cut and dry, very almost, I don't want to say generic, because it is cute in its own way, but uh, the dark matter element of it is like a whole other realm of lore. It's like another layer down on the glacier of lore. All right, now that we've talked a little bit about the uh, characters uh, involved with the early Kirby games, I think it's probably high time we actually start talking about the games themselves. And just to kind of give you guys a little bit of background related to Kirby, it's important to kind of talk about how it kind of came to be. And so how it worked out was there was Hell Laboratories, which was this game development company that was founded in 1980. And they originally were developing games for these kind of obscure, like, gaming consoles. Like, I'm trying to see here what they were originally for. Like, the MSX, and the PC-88, and the Sharp X1 home system. And I think they had some moderate success early 80s. Uh, but then they were trying to create something that was a little bit more appealing to, 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 more, peop to more people, wider audience. And there was this Firebrand developer that was just kind of out of school. He's about 18, 19 years old um, and developed this character, which would eventually become Kirby. And his name is Masahiro Sakurai. And I hope I said that right. Yes, Masahiro Sakurai. And, Good job, uh, bud. I, I know, man, some of these Japanese names, I have a lot of respect for them. But man, it's sometimes it's kind of hard to jump into it. They were in kind of a tough spot, not unlike uh, Squaresoft back in the day. And... They were really, really in debt. I think they were like 5 billion yen in debt. And they were eventually given, I don't know if they were bought out necessarily by Nintendo, but they were given funding by Nintendo saying, hey, if you make this character for us, which would eventually become Kirby, um, you know, we'll, we'll bring you on board. And that's essentially what happened is that this company that was kind of struggling, but had these great ideas, had this great young developer was uh, really brought on board. So looking at Kirby, there was this initial desire for Nintendo to create a game that anyone could enjoy. Uh, Sakurai uh, wanted to kind of appeal to this and his proposal was initially approved and he developed it along with his partners at HAL Laboratories. Um, they just kind of created this simple circular design that was something you could easily just jot down and that's what eventually became Kirby. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, he was initially a placeholder um, and how they wanted the action to kind of work initially was they wanted Kirby to have the the uh, player control Kirby and he would kick and headbutt enemies like a soccer ball. But the one positive reaction um, that they got of his design concepts was that he would be flying, which became a staple um, of Kirby in every game he's able to fly. The inhale ability and copy ability, which has become so synonymous with Kirby, was actually not a part of the first game. And I own Kirby's Dreamland and Dreamland 2, and you know, I haven't played them super, super, you know, thoroughly, but I do remember within the first game you don't have the ability to swallow enemies and and uh, take in their power, which I thought was really weird. So Kirby, his name initially was Tinkuru Popo or Twinkle Popo which I think doesn't have the grabbing force of Kirby. And initially there's a lot of thought behind what his name Kirby eventually, like how he initially got that name. Um, some people believe that it was Nintendo's legal counsel, John Kirby, who defended Nintendo against a bunch of lawsuits, like the one with uh, Donkey Kong versus King Kong against Universal Studios. And there's also this idea because he has this 
this power to puff up and inhale that he was named after the Kirby vacuums. Um, but even Masahiro Sakurai himself has gone on and say that they don't exactly remember what happened, but uh, Shigeru Miyamoto has kind of come on record saying uh, it's it's probably named um, for John Kirby, the lawyer, but there's also some other elements that kind of go along with it. So there's no, there's no confirmed um, naming identity, but I do think it is a lot better than Twinkle Popo. That's just me. I think Kirby has a really quick two-syllable pronunciation, which I think is, is really catching. All right, so looking uh, at the first game, uh, a lot of which I just kind of mentioned the process and background of, we're looking at the first game, which was Kirby's Dream Land, which came out on Game Boy uh, in the spring or summer of 1992, depending on what region of the world you lived in. And if you look at the box art of Kirby's Dream Land, he's depicted as like black and white. He's like this gray blob who doesn't have a lot of color or personality quite yet. And I think that's largely because of the limitations of the Game Boy. Um, as you guys all probably can recall, the Game Boy displayed things monochromatically. And um, the game plays out pretty well. It really set the standard for all of the other Kirby games. I think kind of going back to it 30 years in the future, it's not necessarily the most playable one. I think largely because you don't have the inhale ability. Um, but it is a great game. It is a great way to start off the series. And it does obviously get expanded upon with the second game, which I'll talk about in a little bit. Um, and as we kind of mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, the way that the narrative and plot is developed is pretty limited for Kirby's Dream Land. It has a very, very simple story that sort of just introduces the characters. And I'm just going to go through the booklet of Kirby's Dream Land just to kind of show you um, how limited, I guess, it was. So here's the booklet reading. The description of the game from the booklet. On a tiny star somewhere, far, far away from Earth, there is a very special place known as Dreamland. The Dreamlanders are very happy people who use their magical sparkling stars to play and work among the heavens. That is until one dark night when the gluttonous King DDD and his rotten band of thieves swoop down from neighboring Mount DDD for a midnight snack in Dreamland. Not only did they steal all their food, but they stole the Dreamlanders' treasured sparkling stars as well. Because the Dreamlanders didn't have the sparkling stars to gather food anymore, they began to get very hungry. Suddenly, a spry little boy named Kirby happened along and said, Don't worry, I'll get your food and your sparkling stars back. With these words, Kirby set off on his quest towards the dreaded Mount DDD. We wish him luck. And that's Dreamland. Uh, you fight DDD at the end as you're collecting these sparkling stars. It's a very simple, generic plot line. Uh, I really I, like spry little boy. I was just going to say, when I look at Kirby, I see a spry little boy. Not the face of childhood obesity in the 1990s. <laughs> so, am I to understand that the stars gather food for the inhabitants of Dreamland? We do not question the magic of Dreamland. <laughs> so they've enslaved stars to collect food for them? I told you there's some cosmic nonsense going on with these yeah. games. And I just like, everything stars in Nintendo. You know, it really is. It, I mean, Stars, hearts, and bears, oh my. Yeah, exactly. There is something about stars with the Mario games and uh, yeah. Kirby. Yeah, for sure. So that's really the gist of uh, Kirby's Dreamland. You only play as Kirby. There's not the additional characters with, like we're going to see with uh, Dreamland 2. Uh, yeah, do you have anything else to say about uh, Dreamland? No. No, just no. Yeah, I mean, you've got King Dedede. He's kind of a jerk. That's it. That's all you got. On, yeah, no, not really. I like you said. It's it's really straightforward. It is very straightforward. We're not we're not splitting atoms here. 
No, I know it, it went on to become a bestseller. It was a it was a pretty smash hit. I don't think the Kirby games ever had the um, impact necessarily that the Mario games did, but I think it was a really great uh, weapon to have in the Nintendo's arsenal, so to speak. Right, and I mean, from what I saw on online, just looking into it a little bit more, watching some people play, it sounds like it's a game you could beat in a couple of hours. Oh yeah, I mean, you could probably speed run this in less than an hour, yeah. And I, I think that might be part of the reason it was so successful is it has a lot of appeal, right? I mean, easy enough for a kid to play, but I mean, go ahead. It also has some amount of strategy where you can I've seen tons of no damage runs, right? Like you can impose limits on yourself to make it a more difficult game. Yeah. And I absolutely. think that might be part of why it's so kind of foundational to a lot of people. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I, I understand the appeal, even though I didn't play it. Right. You could say that it's uh bite-sized hey now just like kirby i read that he was eight inches tall oh man that's come at me i do that i don't know that just hurt my brain a lot i don't know what it is Appa like, yeah apparently he's eight inches tall with the exception of uh in super smash he's normal sized i guess i think he's got eight inches where it counts if you know what i mean hey <laughs> so he's essentially <laughs> as tall as, he's, he's as tall as a notebook is wide Okay. <laughs> a notebook is much wider than eight inches. No, isn't it? It's I have a notebook right in front of me. Isn't it like eleven and a half by eight inches across? Isn't that what a I'm sorry. Is? I thought you were talking about. I thought you were talking about thickness. My bad. I know what <laughs> width is. Oh, you want to talk about thickness? We're in the right spot, boy. <laughs> God dang it! <laughs> it's like we're slowly devolving from a family-friendly podcast to That's an adults-only. Okay. That's okay. We can have fun. All right, so let's jump into the next it's just, game. It's just the boys today. We can have fun. It's just the boys and a little pink blob that could. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so moving on from uh, Kirby's Dreamland on the Game Boy, we are jumping into one of my favorite games of all time, Kirby's Adventure on the NES, which came out in spring of 1993. And this is one thing that I've noticed as I was kind of jotting down and going through um, the Kirby games was how, with the exception of the first game, Dreamland, a lot of these games came out kind of late in each of these systems lifetime uh by the time of 1992 1993 the nes was on the way out i want to say they made games up through 1993 94 95 maybe but kirby's adventure which was one of its biggest hits was you know in spring of 93 which is kind of on the tail end of the system of the nes because of course by that time uh the snes had been out for a year or two anyway kirby's adventure it takes a lot of the foundational elements of Kirby's Dream Land and really just explodes everything. It really does. Uh, colors are just amazing. The music is top-notch. Levels are great. Enemies are great. It's just a absolute jump in um, just, I don't know, everything. It's really just an amazing uh, advancement between the first game and the second game. Uh, anyway, let's talk a little bit about Kirby's Adventure here. I have the, the blurb again from the manual, um, just to kind of read you again, just how amazing this early 90s writing is. So here we go. This is Kirby's Adventure as according to the instructional booklet. So, <clears throat> light years away on a tiny star not visible from Earth. So apparently this takes place in the same universe as Earth, that Earth exists in the same corporeal plane that Kirby does. That's you interesting. You didn't know that? No, I didn't. I didn't know that. Anyway, so light years away from Earth on a tiny star not visible from Earth is the magical, peaceful place known as Dreamland. The beings that inhabit this wonderful place live a blissful existence that centers on eating, sleeping, and playing. My kind of life. An example of their carefree customs include the traditional after-lunch feast nap. Amazing. Siesta. Por favor. 
Uh, after they awaken from their nap, the Dreamlanders discuss their dreams and fervently hope that each other's fondest wishes come true. How sweet. Guessing they don't have social media there. Uh, one day, a young Dreamlander named Kirby awoke from his after lunch, after lunch nap feeling terrible. What happened, he wondered to himself. I didn't have any dreams during my lunch nap. This lack of dreams left Kirby feeling very uneasy. After talking to some of his friends, he found out that the problem was much more serious than he had thought. For they had not experienced any dreams either. Something must have happened to the dream spring, they exclaimed in unison. See, the dream spring is a magical well that is a reservoir for all of the dreams of the inhabitants of Dreamland. Dreams also flow out of the dream spring and envelop Dreamland, granting all sleeping beings enjoyable dreams. Legends told that the dream spring was created by a magical artifact known as the Star Rod. The sparkling star on the tip of this scepter was an actual fragment of a star that had landed in Dreamland in the distant past. The Star Rod now provided energy to the dream spring and served as a very symbol of Dreamland. The lack of dreams made everyone in Dreamland feel restless and irritable. The joyful laughter that had once resounded throughout Dreamland could no longer be heard at all. Things were bleak. Kirby, the, the roly-poly hero of Dreamland, boldly announced his intentions to investigate Dream Springs and find out the cause of this trouble. Upon reaching the Dream Spring, uh, who did he find but King DDD, bathing in its magical waters? In the past, King DDD had caused mischief in Dreamland by stealing all of the Dreamlanders' food and sparkling stars. Now in the middle of the Dream Spring, in the place of the Star Rod, sat DDD, covered with bubble bath. Sorry. So. <laughs> I, I'm pretty much always covered in bubble bath. If you walked in here right now. So Kirby. Slip and slide. Yeah, yeah. So Kirby walks up on DDD. So you're up to your old tricks again. Hey, DDD. Accused Kirby. What are you talking about, young Pudball? DDD looked surprised. I thought I'd do everyone a favor by. No, no, no. Kirby shook his head. I won't listen to your tricks. What have you done with the star rod? Oh, that old thing? DDD said nonchalantly. I broke it into seven pieces and gave each piece to one of my friends. What was DDD thinking, Kirby wondered. Before hearing any more of what DDD had to say, Kirby set off the long trek to gather the pieces of the Star Rod and return them to the Dream Spring. Hopefully he could return the sparkle to the Dream Spring so that the people of Dreamland could again enjoy their happy midday naps. So that was the booklet version of the events. And this is just sort of a more succinct breakdown of what actually happens once uh, Kirby confronts DDD in the spring. Uh, DDD gave... Uh, all of his friends, which eventually became the world bosses. As you move through the game, you enter different zones, different worlds through doors. And each zone is sort of themed after a different, I don't know, a different zone, different element. Not necessarily like fire element, water element, but sort of like different, I don't know, ideal locations. Like my favorite is Orange Ocean, which is this beautiful, like nautical themed thing where like the, the water looks like orange Fanta. It's really cool. And like there's these, what is it? Grape Gardens, I'm going to get flack online for that, but I, I should know all of those. But you go through these different stages, and at the end of each main set of levels, there's the main boss, and that's who has these star, uh, star rod pieces. So anyway, uh, along the way, Kirby gets harassed, and Meta Knight kind of comes along the way. Um, occasionally, he's kind of like a mini boss. You fight him a few times. He's really not that difficult. Um, so Meta Knight kind of comes along the way. But eventually what happens as you're kind of moving through the levels, you're beating all the bosses, getting all the pieces back. Uh, you find DDD back at the Fountain of Dreams. Uh, you fight DDD. Um, he's not really that difficult. Um, what happens then is DDD grabs Kirby and like like begs him not to like put the Star Rod back in place uh, on the on the fountain. But like Kirby does it anyway. And what happens is he unleashes Nightmare, uh, and Nightmo uh, Nightmare absorbs the power from the fountain and like flies into the sky while the other two are like freaking out on the ground. 
Uh, DDD then like sucks in Kirby and like spits him out uh, into the sky to fight uh, Nightmare, where they battle um, right on the the planet Popstar's moon. So you're fighting this cosmic wizard in the sky using a star rod, uh, and you eventually do defeat Nightmare, uh, and the explosion ends up making a large hole in the moon, uh, making it crescent-shaped. Uh, Kirby returns back to the Fountain of Dreams and places the star rod back in its like respective location. And then, of course, everything returns to normal with Dreams coming back to Dreamland. It's said at the end that DDD's prior actions were revealed to be a part of his plan to actually protect the fountain from Nightmare and the two reconcile. So this is where you see DDD not being the true enemy of things. And this game really impressioned DDD as not this super terrible enemy. It is always these sort of cosmic horrors uh, that sort of exist on the fringes of... of, of uh, the series so that's uh kirby's adventure yeah he's just a secret good guy secret good guy yeah <laughs> i might i might steal candy from a baby but it's for a good cause Mm-hmm. so yeah that's kirby's adventure like i said one of my favorite games of all time i can go back to it time and time again it's just super nostalgic for me me and my brother both absolutely adore the game uh if you haven't played kirby's adventure if you play any kirby's game kirby game uh definitely check out adventure is one of the top ones uh, anything that you have to say about Kirby's Adventure before we set off into Dreamland 2? So just for clarification, would this be the first introduction of Dark Matter uh, as Nightmare? Or does I, that happen in the next one? I don't think he's technically Nightmare's not part Dark of, Matter. I don't think he's technically. I think he's somehow related to um, the Dark Matter aspects of it, but I don't think he's... He's like a crony. I think he's like a, a smaller piece of the puzzle, okay. so to speak. And I should have mentioned, um, this is the first game that introduces the inhale ability, which Kirby becomes so well known for, and is one of the major mechanics that, you know, becomes a staple of the series. The ability to inhale enemies, not every enemy, there's like, I can remember there's a few enemies that don't have any powers, um, but a lot of the times most enemies um, will, uh, You'll inhale them, you press down, and you inhale their power. You can get fire, you can get sword, you can get ice, you can get freeze. There's a lot. You can get spike, stone, ball. God, I could. I wonder if I could name all of them. But you get a lot of these really awesome powers, and certain levels are a lot easier when you have certain ones. But I think that's another one of the um, uh, things that lend uh, the replayability of this game. It's just the fact that you can play this game using just one power if you really want to, um, or don't use any power at all. So I think that's... I don't know, even to this day when I go back and play the games and I get the power or I get the uh, UFO, which is um, one of the... Power, right? Yeah, yeah, it's more or less a secret power because it's super powerful. It's like a combination of like three or four powers. And fun fact, Jeremy, um, Hail Laboratories recently made a game that features a UFO. Um, I forget the name of it. I'll have to look it up. It's it, they, were, they were doing it during the, uh, the, the Games Done Quick Run and it looked like a lot of fun. Hmm. But... Um, yeah. I did look it up. Nightmare does not appear to be a part of the Dark Matter. He's just okay. a different final boss, um, kind of a major villain, but he does not appear to be a part of Dark Matter, just a separate entity that is trying to corrupt the dreams of Dreamland. So okay. there's that. So it's really before it takes off into La La Cosmic Land. Right. Um, and one thing I think the, just kind of to add on for the, the upgrades, I think it was a really neat and unique way to introduce upgrades to a game. It's not just something that you pick up, you know, you actually get to absorb and mimic your enemies. 
Uh, I think it's just a, a cool thing as opposed to it being like, you look at Mario that had a fly, a fireball, a superstar. Is that it? What am I missing? In the first game, dang. Um, yeah, the star, the mushroom, fireball. I, I mean, mushroom like... isn't really a... I mean, it's an upgrade. It just gives you an extra hit. But, like, it doesn't really change your attack mechanics or anything like that. Right. And, and yeah, this is, like... This is, like, this this game really standardized the ability of, like, copying abilities. Not only for platformers, but for a lot of games. Just the ability right. to absorb your enemies. So and, I think... And each of those copies kind of give you unique ways you know what even if they're both like even if there's multiple ones with ranged attacks they're like different attack angles or patterns or something like it, it gives you a way to kind of play your style yeah and there are hidden zones that you have to use certain powers to get to like there's my favorite one ever is like i don't remember what level it is but there's this cannon that you have to fire but you have to have a firepower to light the wick then run over to the cannon jump in the cannon and it'll fire to fire you to the, this hidden area so there's oh, a lot of neat. yeah, there's a lot of puzzle solving elements to these games as well. Um, yeah, no, like I said, I can't I, I can't talk enough good things about Kirby's Adventure. It's just top notch. So Dreamland Two was re- released on the Game Boy Game Boy Standard. This isn't this is before Color. I think this is by the time Pocket came out. I'll have to look into that. But this is spring of 1995. And it was so, an interesting note to go from the Game Boy to the NES back to the Game Boy. That was kind of an interesting jump. It is, and looking at the plot of Kirby's Adventure, it's sort of related to the first game because even the booklet reading that I didn't actually read out is that it has in parentheses, um, see Kirby's Dreamland for Game Boy. So it it, it, it knows that King DDD is already an established enemy. Um, sure. So with Kirby's Adventure, it's, I don't know if it's a side shot. Or, or if maybe it isn't just a- separate stories kind of. Yeah, it, it definitely could be. Um, and then looking at Kirby's Dreamland 2, uh, it doesn't necessarily follow the exact plot line of Dreamland 1, so it's kind of hard to say if it's a direct sequel. But anyway, this is from the instruction booklet of Kirby's Dreamland 2. Uh, spring of 1995 on the Game Boy. So, Kirby lives in the Rainbow Islands of Dreamland. So, still on Dreamland. The rainbows that connect the islands have been stolen by the evil Dark Matter. Dark Matter has taken control of King DDD and wants to turn Dreamland into a dark world. With the help of his three friends, Kirby sets out in his latest quest to save Dreamland. The plot follows Kirby, who is this resident of Dreamland. Um, the rainbow bridge that collects the rainbow islands have been stolen by Dark Matter. Uh, he's intent on conquering Dreamland. Uh, and he, of course, as I just mentioned, he does possess King DDD. So with Star Warp, uh, Kirby sets out to defeat Dark Matter with his new animal friends. So just like some of the other games we talked about, uh, especially the Sonic games, this is one of those games from the early 90s that has the uh, good ending and bad ending. So I'm going to tell you the bad ending here real quick. Um, so when Kirby confronts the possessed king and defeats him without having collected each of the level's rainbow drop, the player encounters the game's bad ending. An enemy roll call is shown as Kirby and the animal friends traverse back home in the rain. At the end of the roll call, a mysterious silhouette of a figure is shown labeled exclamation point question mark. And Kine, the fish I'll talk about in a second, will look up quizzically. So it kind of in, infers that you didn't fully complete everything. However, the good ending is as follows. The good ending is obtained by collecting all the rainbow drops. Once DDD is defeated, the rainbow drops will combine above Kirby to form the rainbow sword. And Kirby will rise to space to face dark matter. First in his swordsman form and then in his standard form. After the defeat of dark matter, Kirby begins to fall from the sky. As the animal friends and King DDD look on, Kirby grabs the rainbow sword and uses it to form a rainbow across the sky. 
So yeah, that is the basic premise of Kirby's Dreamland 2. And this, as the uh, plot points introduced, uh, a few new companions for Kirby. And that includes Rick the Hamster, Koo the Owl, and Kine the Sunfish. So these animal companions you can obtain on certain levels, and they kind of give you, I don't want to say necessarily a buff, but they kind of change the dynamic of the game. For example, Kine the Sunfish, there's certain levels where there's like negative water currents pushing against you and Kine can swim through them. But what's cool about like Rick is that when you have certain power-ups, this game you do have power-ups just like the last game. So uh, Rick, for example, when you have certain power-ups, it'll actually change the animation and function of the power-ups. Um, rather than just Kirby throwing an object, it'll be Rick throwing Kirby, for example. Uh, and Koo the Owl can help you fly around stages a bit. So the Animal Companions are definitely um, a, a boost to the game. I don't. There's not really a lot of backs, back, uh, backstory or lore that I know of with the with the Animal Companions. I think they were just an addition to kind of keep it cute, keep it fun, add a new element to the game. Uh, I think a lot of people really heavily revere Dreamland 2 as one of the best Kirby games, uh, just because it continues on the legacy and standards of Kirby's Adventure, the uh, power absorption abilities, uh, the plot line, I guess, and a lot of other just cool mechanics too. So while it is a Game Boy game, it's still a really solid Game Boy game, and it's definitely more playable, I would say, than the first one. So I know that in the third Dreamland, some of those uh, companions return and they are used to access like special areas or um, other things like that. Do you know if there's anything like that for them in Dreamland 2 or are they just kind of a, a new mechanic, new ways to move, that sort of thing? Yeah, you can you can use them to solve certain things. It's it's just another mechanic they added for not puzzles, but sort of secrets and stuff like that, you know. So, okay. yeah. Yeah, so it's 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 another element. It doesn't really super super improve everything, but I think they're definitely an added bonus um, for the gameplay. Okay, and I, I might have a different opinion on that because I didn't play Dreamland or Dreamland Two until I was like in my late twenties. So maybe if I was younger and played them, I might have like a tattoo of them already. I don't know. I mean, sure. Rick, the, Rick the Hamster is a pretty pretty bad dude. So uh, yeah, that's that's uh, Kirby Dreamland Two. And I know there might be there might be some contention within the the fans because I've also heard a lot of people say that like Superstar is revered as one of the better games as well, like one of the best games as well. Yeah, and once so, we once we talk about that, you know, I'll I'll, I'll throw in my two cents about that. But I mean, do you, before great. we move on to that, yeah, I know <laughs> this is the. Uh, the, the grocery store worker is like having like night sweats for some reason right now. He doesn't know what's going on. He's like, I feel a disturbance in the forest. But one <laughs> thing I do. There's a disturbance in the cabbage. <laughs> There's a disturbance in the cabbage. Hey, Ronnie, go pick up the cabbage. Um, one thing I do want to say to kind of get back to um, Kirby's godly abilities. I was looking at this video that Polygon did about Kirby's abilities and how he shouldn't have them. First of all, Kirby has this adorable ability to suck in, inhale enemies, and absorb their power. And in the Smash Brothers games, he politely spits, you know, your character back out. So you're playing as Link, and Kirby sucks you in, he's going to absorb some of Link's power and his physical attributes. But here's the problem with the Kirby games, is that when you inhale someone and you swallow him, that's it. You eat them. Yeah. You, eat, you eat them. But here's the thing, though. You absorb his power... And the energy and physical makeup of atoms of that enemy do not follow the laws of thermodynamics. 
that all energy must be, you know, cannot be created or destroyed. It's just transferred into something else. I mean, you don't know what Kirby's bathroom time looks like, all right, dude? I'm just saying there's more to more than meets the eye. This is the Transformers of video games. <laughs> Not really. All right, what are we all moving right. on to next? All right, so next um, we will go in chronological order by release. So we will not be talking about Dreamland 3 yet. We will be talking about Kirby Superstar, which came out in March 1996, uh, at least in Japan, I believe. So we'll go based on that. Kirby Superstar is actually a collection of eight games, most of which are smaller. A lot of them are just kind of mini games. Um, for example, Megaton Punch and Kirby Samurai. Pretty straightforward. Megaton Punch is you're just trying to break bricks better than the opponent does. And when you do that, there's this cool little cutscene where it shows the planet just kind of getting a crack down it. And you're just trying to basically split the planet in half if you can. And then Cur uh, Samurai Kirby is another little quick mini game where you're just trying to wait for like a green light to, to hit the button faster than the opponent. And you're just trying to get a little, little slashy cut on them. So pretty simplistic, straightforward with those really small mini games. There's also the arena where you just go back and replay the bosses in a continuous streak. There is the Great Cave Offensive, which is a very, it's longer, but there's not really much story. It's just kind of a, a glorified treasure hunt. Uh, Gorman Race, or Gourmet Race, sorry, where you're just racing King Didi and trying to collect the most food. Uh, then leading up to the two larger games, the other one in between there would be Dino Blade, in which the crops of Dreamland are being ruined, and Kirby investigates what's going on and finds there's a massive bird, in which case Kirby then defeats the bird. There's not a whole lot going on, you're just kind of running through, I think, four or five little levels, which will then lead us to the two games that are kind of hailed as the better ones for that particular mashup of games, The Revenge of Meta Knight and Milky Way Wishes. The Revenge of Meta Knight is actually unlocked after bleeding, beating Dynablade, Meta Knight intends to take over Dreamland and put an end to the lazy, carefree attitude of all of its inhabitants. Kirby attempts to board the ship and is thwarted by a mechanical lobster, and later, after attempting again to board the ship, a combo cannon. And I would just like to mention how cool it is to fight a mechanical lobster. Sounds very Sonic the Hedgehog. Yeah, well, it's Kirby time. So, he, finally, he returns back onto the ship on the back of Dynablade, and is then, again, shot down, but not before Kirby can jump aboard the ship. While wreaking havoc on the ship, Kirby duels Meta Knight before destroying the reactor and escaping on a motorized unicycle as Meta Knight chases after trying to get revenge on Kirby for destroying his ship, but Kirby makes his great escape. A couple of notes about this game. It was a little different from the normal Kirby's, which are a little slower paced. You can kind of take them at your leisure. This whole game is actually timed. Again, Meta Knight's kind of the main villain of this. You can see, I think in, in the first game, does he reveal that he's just another Kirby? I know in this one, after you defeat him, he kind of, you kind of see that he's just another Kirby dude. I mean, you can physically see his appearance and stuff like that, but he's still pretty mysterious in uh, Kirby's adventure. But yeah, again, this one's also fairly short. As far as storyline-wise, it's pretty basic, but it just kind of shows Meta Knight's villainous intent. He's not set upon necessarily like galactic destruction, just he wants to put people back to work. He's a really bad middle manager at a TJ Maxx. Yes, yeah. Okay. If you've got time to lean, you've got time to clean. That's Meta Knight's motto. He's got a tattooed on his tram stamp area. <laughs> Gross. 
The largest game on Superstar is Milky Way Wishes. In this game, the sun and the moon are fighting and pushing each other out of the sky, constantly swapping between night and day. While watching the struggle, Kirby is approached by a jester named Marx. He recommends Kirby ask the giant comet Nova to help, but to do so, Kirby will have to gather the star power from planets near Popstar. So, just to interlude here, uh, Milky Way Wishes, what my uncle called what happens, happened to me when I was a teenager at nighttime. <laughs> Better leave that in. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Since we're kind of at a pause in the story here, one thing I, I kind of noticed coming back to this as an adult, this whole story kind of reminds me of a classic Greek myth or an Egyptian myth. Okay. So you've got two galactic beings kind of vying for power and then some hero just kind of watching on and being pushed on to go forward. So you're saying that the interactions of Kirby and Meta Knight are... Not unlike the classical stories of Heracles and his 12 labors and the Sword of Damocles in the case of uh, Meta Knight? Yeah, obviously. Of course, obviously. Maybe that's uh, what I, I mean, need to write my doctoral uh, thesis on is the, the connection between Kirby lore and Greek and Roman mythology. All right. So Kirby then sets off exploring the nearby planets, defeating bosses and collecting star power before summoning Nova to make his wish. Marx appears and pushes Kirby out of the way, and instead wishes for world domination on Planet Popstar. This wish transforms him into a bat-like creature, and Marx reveals he was behind the sun and the moon fighting to begin with. As Nova makes its way to Popstar, Kirby is able to use the star power he gathered to create a starship and chase after Nova. Kirby flies into Nova and destroys the core, wounding Nova and halting its process. Enraged, Marx chases Kirby to a nearby moon where the two battle. Kirby defeats Marx, knocking him into Nova, presumably destroying them both in an explosion of bright light. Kirby then returns to Popstar, finding the sun and the moon have made their peace. One little tidbit to add as far as Nova is, it's called a comet, but it's kind of this clockwork creature with a face just kind of duping through space. Yeah, and I think the further lore talks about the construction of said uh, clock star demon cosmic entity so this is i think this is really the start of adding on to this deep space lore deep space kirby as we want <laughs> deep space nine yeah kirby's we, back kirby's back uh so yeah this is really this sort of jumping point into larger things outside of just meta knight and king ddd um, was there anything else you wanted to add about Superstar? Did you play Superstar much? Or? Uh, no, I didn't. Again, it's one of those games that I... Dead. I know, I know. And one of the reasons why I feel kind of hesitant to, like, listen to the praise this game gets is just because it is so fractured in a lot of ways. Um, you know, with the other Kirby games we talked about, they're all pretty linear. They follow the same storyline. But with this game, I think what turned me off so much was the fact that you turn this game on and you're offered all of these different options and some of them are like pretty succinct and great games and some of them are just right. like these really quick mini games. I feel like you could have just lumped it all into one and it would have been a lot better. That's just my opinion. I right. mean, you're the one that almost got arrested for renting it too much. You can't arrest this. Many I mean, have tried. Few have succeeded. Yeah, what made this so appealing for you as a kid? I think it's not necessarily this game in particular. I think Kirby just has a lot of appeal to a lot of people. One thing that was nice was this game did have some sort of co-op in it. You could copy a, a, an enemy and then another player could play that character. So I just remember it being a, a fun game. The mini games were kind of fun when you got bored of the normal quest. 
and then you you know you just don't take it back. It's mine now. Did you guys beat it then? All of these? Yeah. 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 yeah if okay. memory serves, um, there was one game I forgot to mention uh, of the the eight Spring Breeze. It was basically just a, a remake of the original Kirby, just kind of like streamlined, dumbed down. I think there's a boss or two missing from it. Okay. So yeah, I, I think that's kind of what the appeal was. I noticed the art is a little bit different. Obviously, it's going to be different from the Game Boy games, but when we talk about the next one, Kirby Dreamland, it goes back to the other art style, kind of more pastel-y. And I think I a big reason I like this one too is the more vibrant colors that you get. It's sort of closer to like a Super Mario than that pastel-y Dreamland look. If you've noticed that. Yeah, as well. yeah. Superstar is very, very saturated in its colors. And it's very like in your face in a lot of ways. And I think right. that's obviously very appealing to to kids as well. Yeah, I think it was something familiar, slightly different, but still very enjoyable. Yeah. I will also pull up the instruction manual and read from that because that background was mildly enjoyable. And yeah, just as he's doing that, uh, Kirby Dreamland 3, November 1997. So just like with. Uh, Kirby's Adventure on the NES, this is coming out really towards the tail end of the SNES lineup. I don't know the last game that was released on SNES, but this has got to be up there because the SNES was around from, what, 1991 um, up through the late 90s. So this is kind of like a major game coming out um, on a system that's already kind of on the way out because the, the uh, uh, N64 had just released a year or so prior. So interesting to see how a lot of these games... Um, and of course, we're going to talk about Kirby 64 in a minute, all releasing sort of in the autumn and twilight of uh, the uh, the console's lifetime. As this is the first Kirby game to launch on the, CES, uh, the SNES, we get a little bit of a recap of who Kirby is. So, Kirby, our hero, makes his home in Dreamland, which is located on Popstar. Popstar is a small peaceful planet at the edge of a vast universe. One day, Kirby and Gooey went fishing. Birds were singing. The sun was shining. It was such a nice day that they felt more like napping than fishing. As Kirby and Gooey relaxed, they noticed a black, cloud-like object appear in the sky of Popstar. The black object started to spit out small clouds. These clouds were scattered everywhere. Just then, Koo appeared, looking panicked. Hurry, Kirby, he said. Popstar's in big trouble. The small clouds took control of King Dedede and his minions. They started to do terrible things. Now Kirby and his friends have left to get rid of these strange clouds and save Popstar. This game introduces a new character, Gooey, which is an offshoot of Dark Matter, but he's a good guy. And in this one, you could also have a friend, kind of like all the other Garrett Kirby games. You go around traveling, you defeat King Dedede. If you don't collect enough, that's where you get kind of the bad ending. And then if you do, the the Dark Matters sucked out of DDD and you enter the hyper zone where we discover the mysterious darkness this time is known as zero which is the leader of the dark matter kirby then floats away above a liberated pop star and everyone is free to go back to eating and fishing and napping and not being in the dark not if meta knight has anything to do with it bunch of oafs just lounging about. Yeah, and what's an interesting departure from the other games is Dreamland 3 has this very pastel, almost claymation style to it, which I think, I don't want to say turned off people. It'd be kind of interesting to survey people to kind of see how they feel about Dreamland 3. I've played it a bit on my SNES Classic, and it's, um, it's pretty good. It follows a lot of the same dynamics that Dreamland 2 and 1 did, 
Um, it has like the animal companions again. Rick is back. Um, all the other animals are back. It's just, I don't know. I, I feel like because this came out so late, it didn't resonate necessarily so much with the audience, you know, the, the gamers as a whole. I know a lot of people really love it. It's a, you know, cult game to a lot of people, but Dreamland 3, I felt like, I don't know, it just hit at the wrong time. Yeah, I think it, I think it tried to go back to that Dreamland art style and then also utilize 16-bit as opposed to the 8-bit color and everything. Um, I don't know, the last thing I want when I have a new groundbreaking system that's in its twilight years at least is to play a game that looks like I'm still playing it on the nest. Yeah, I think that's fair. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, if you're spending $60 on a brand new game today, do you want it to look like it's you're playing on the PS2? I mean, I guess it depends on the game. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of games that are coming out nowadays that have that sort of retro look to them. But I guess that but you that... know, you, like a triple A, a big game back then when Nintendo's big dog, like you expect kind of yeah. groundbreaking every time. So and this is I can and this see... is and this is like a year after Mario sixty four too. Granted, it's a different really? system. All yeah, granted, it's a different system altogether. Yeah, I believe you'd have to look that up when Mario sixty four came out. I want to say it was you know came out in ninety six, ninety five, even ninety six. Oh yeah, yeah, right. So, um, I mean, the art, like the art, doesn't look bad. It just definitely doesn't look like what you'd expect in 1997. Yeah, and to kind of transition into the next one here, this was really at a time in the late 90s when every gaming publisher, console maker, whatever, was really emphasizing 3D graphics over 2D. 2D was the old thing. 2D was a past fad. No one really wanted to kind of go back to 2D. Everything was all about 3D, you know, PlayStation, uh, N64, the ill-fated uh, <laughs> Atari Jaguar. I know a lot of a lot of games and, and, and the direction, even haphazardly, were starting to go 3D. So to see something come out in November of 1997 that looks really old school, that is looking quote-unquote kitty, um, I don't think resonated necessarily as well. The only exception to this uh, 2D being passe, I think, was Castlevania Symphony of the Night. I will bring Castlevania into every game, no matter what. Um, it, you know, it it broke the mold of everything needs to be 3D. So yeah, it's it's just interesting to see how this game came out when there was really not a lot of market or desire for 2D games anymore. But that leads us into Kirby 64. Unless you had anything else to say. It's really reflected in this game how important 3D was because it is still a side scroller just like the other ones where you have Mario 64, Zelda, everything else going to a 3D game. This still sticks with its side scrolling platformer but there are 3D elements like the background and the scenery are 3D. So it kind of plays this maybe sort of best of both worlds where you still get some really awesome 3D graphics. It stays true to what it is. It is still a side-scrolling platformer. And I think that's why the, you know, the, the people that do like it, like it, it, you know, it didn't change fundamentally. Like Mario 64 was fun, but for me, Mario was a platformer. And I kind of lost my love for platformers when they went 3D. Really? That's interesting because a lot of people, you know, I think with the success of, of uh, Mario 64 and Ocarina of Time, those games revolutionized the the way that 3D games were played. Um, and Kirby 64, it's a good game, but like you said, it's this 2.5 almost. I know sometimes the angles change, but it largely does play very linearly like a, a 2D game does. And I think that does kind of get muddled down sometimes when you say this is a 3D game, but it plays like a 2D game. Right. 
Um, but anyway, yeah, you want to introduce Kirby, Kirby 64, March of 2000. In a distant corner of the galaxy, fairies live on the peaceful planet of Ripple Star. But then, one day, a mysterious black cloud appears and surrounds the peaceful planet. The cloud, a sinister force known as Dark Matter, has come in search of the fairy's secret treasure, their shining crystal. A fairy named Ribbon knew that dreadful things would come to pass if Dark Matter gained control of the powerful crystal. She grabbed the Shining Stone and escaped from Ripple Star just before the planet was completely engulfed. However, as Ribbon fled, three clouds split from the mass of Dark Matter to chase her through space. When they caught up with her and attacked, the fairy's crystal shattered into tiny shards which dropped like falling stars onto the many planets in the solar system. Still holding one of the crystal shards, Ribbon fell onto the planet called Popstar where perhaps by fate, she ran smack into Kirby. After hearing her desperate plight, Kirby resolved to help Ribbon recover all of the crystal shards. If you haven't figured it out by now, guess who's back? Dark Matter. Yay! There's nothing I love more than a reoccurring galactic villain. Much like all of the other Kirby games, you run around collecting the shards. As you go through, this is where this one's kind of different, and Dark Matter starts to possess different different characters, and they're kind of the boss battle. So as Kirby explores, he encounters some allies who are currently possessed by Dark Matter, and then after beating them and unpossessing them, exercising them, if you will, they join him for his cause. So he's joined by Waddle Dee, Adeline, which I believe only appears in this particular game. And she's a human that came to Popstar to learn how to paint better. That's pretty much it. Like, she follows Kirby around. She can paint things into existence, which is kind of a neat power. I don't know why you wouldn't include her in more games. Probably because that's really strong, if you think about it. Uh, and King Didi. And after saving them from Dark Matter, they join his quest. He runs around collecting the 74 shards and then goes to face off against Dark Matter. After defeating Dark Matter, or I guess defeating Miracle Matter, Dark Matter then flees Ripple Star and explodes. The crystal then detects a powerful presence of dark energy within the Fairy Queen and it expels it from her and then manifesting over the planet to create Dark Star, the secret level, which is the good ending if you collect the 74 shards. Kirby and the gang infiltrate Dark Star aided by King DDD, and armed with the crystal, they confront and defeat the final boss, O2. So all of these bosses from 64 uh, and Dreamland are all, just as a reminder, a part of the same entity, Dark Matter. I see. Um, and originally, I believe there was the intent to have the other player characters either be controlled by a second player or swappable and just giving them all their abilities. But that was ended up that ended up being scrapped and they just kind of were tag alongs kind of in between phases of the missions. They didn't really accompany him with, I think, a couple exceptions on any of the missions. They were just kind of there for the in between cutscenes. And I think what's interesting is that you have to collect all 74 shards, which is largely reflective of what was going on in a lot of the 3D games, is once they realized they couldn't uh, invent the wheel with every new game, they decided to make everything collectathons. Um, yep. And that's uh, Kirby 64 is a good example of that. It's and, like the uh, current hell of zone control we were we were in, like infamous everything uh, prototype, where it's like, oh, go unlock this zone. Now go unlock that zone. Yeah, I mean these these trends they they're trends they they, they happen you know d different different time places. I mean yeah, like Jeremy is just saying, 
you know, 10, 12 years ago, every game had to have some moody protagonist in a hoodie with a creepy mutant arm. And that's every game, you know, that's every game. That's my life. Right. That's my life. I I think what's cool about Kirby 64 is that you actually jump around to different planets this time. Usually you were just on the one planet. Um, And I I do actually, do you have any memories with this? Have you played Kirby 64? Uh, No, but I'm thinking about seeing if I can find it and fire it up. Um, Because I think I have my Nintendo 64 laying around somewhere here. It's a it's a good one. Uh, I have pretty fond memories of it, um, just because it was for me it was a good revival of the series. I know I know people are really mixed on it, um, but for me I think that the saving grace of this game is the ability to combine powers. Uh, yeah. Originally you I could just about. yeah originally you could just have fire or sword individually, but in this game you can inhale one enemy, puke it back up, and then throw it at another enemy. That power you just threw at the enemy will combine with their power. And you can absorb a combination. There's like tons and tons of different combinations. And sometimes you can have double fire, double bomb, whatever. So there's like, I don't know, there's not obviously unlimited combinations. But I think what keeps the game fresh is just the ability to just play around with different combinations all the time. Um, Which is a really awesome improvement, I think, for this game. I think this is the, that's the real saving grace with this. I think that might be one of the, one of the places that Kirby is kind of always maybe push the boundaries a little bit more is it always seems like there is a ton of different power-ups that were unique enough to justify having them all you know what i mean to like that just changed the game slightly i mean from a from throwing a sword to turning into a a literal wheel and just running enemies over Mm -hmm. yeah and with this one you're just able to just kind of play around with okay if i do this and this what's going to happen then and then like you know it's it is fun. I, I think Kirby 64 is fun, even though it does have that. It is kind of weird to kind of go back to. I mean, the visuals done with, with like a lot of N64 games, it didn't age super gracefully. So I think Kirby 64 is a really good game. Is it groundbreaking like some of the earlier ones? No, uh, but I think it does still stand as a pretty solid game, especially just for that um, mechanic of combining powers. Well, um, the one thing we haven't touched on about all the Kirby games in general is the sound tracks. Yes. Probably the most just cheerful, happy music. I mean, like, you could get the worst possible news in your life and go play a Kirby game and it'll at least bring you back to neutral. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's the, the whole idea of music is in video games is such a huge thing and there's... Just to throw out another podcast, there's the Super Mercado Brothers uh, podcast, and they are a gaming podcast, but they go from the angle of music. So they break down, they're like two brothers, and they're both like um, like music majors, they're like composers, so they know music theory and stuff like that. And they listen to different soundtracks, and they break down like the 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 purpose and like progression of the song and like how it makes you know the the atmosphere it's really cool if you guys haven't checked it out super mercado brothers we're not sponsored with them i don't know them but like looking at it helped me understand gaming music more so just listening to their sort of analysis of of things like that and like the whole purpose of kirby i think is just to have a good time and despite the fact that there's these cosmic horrors that are looming in the distance um right it's a, it's, a, it's an interesting contrast it, yes. it's so uplifting so cheery so kind of Upbeat. aloof upbeat and then you also have just this huge ominous existential horror looming over and you just kind of forget it's there because everything else is so happy and innocent and cute yeah absolutely 
I mean, I could talk ad nauseum about just the impact of, of, of music in, in video games, especially the Kirby series, I think. Just like Sonic and how the, the music of Sonic was just top-notch, really kind of get you geared up. I think Kirby does the same thing of, like, relaxing mm-hmm. you and has that real awesome sense of nostalgia. Um, the one thing I want to do before we conclude, ladies and gentlemen, I kind of was texting Jeremy about this a little bit, and it's just kind of because I have a strange mind and I kind of wanted to explore it. I'm looking at Kirby in the grand lexicon of Nintendo mascots. And my general conclusion is that Kirby is the Wendy's <laughs> of Nintendo mascots. What do you think, Jeremy? I mean, based on your reasoning, I would have to agree with you. I guess I personally think you'd be the fat bastard of mm. Nintendo mascots. Sure. But... That's not a that's not a restaurant chain. We're going off restaurant chains. If we're ranking Nintendo's based on restaurant chains, oh we're, okay, ranking Nintendo's based off restaurant chains. Right. Kirby's so, is the Wendy's. Okay, I'm and down. that is be- and that is because let me let me let me explain because they weren't people aren't reading our text chain. Yeah, I know. So my idea for why Kirby is Wendy's is because Wendy's is always solid. It's fattening. It's cozy. A lot of people have fond memories of Wendy's in the 90s back when they had that yellow packaging and it really hit a lot better than it does now. And it's just always there for you. Um, I don't know, and, and I, I think I, I think it's because covered in we, grease. I think I think it's because Wendy's is never anyone's number one choice. But if you go there, it's going to be a good time. How much so, Wendy's chili can you eat in ten minutes? Oh uh, God, uh, maybe we'll do as an incentive or something. If we do a Patreon or something, we'll do some sort of Wendy's chili chug. Chili competition. <laughs> Wendy's chili chug. Oh God. But I, I I just think that because Kirby isn't. Um, Nintendo's number one franchise, neither is Wendy's in the grand lexicon of fast food establishments. Um, so if we had to, okay, so let's take, let's, let's take like other, th- like three other big Nintendo franchises. We uh, get Mario, uh, Legend of Zelda, uh, Kirby. What else is a big, uh, Donkey Kong, I guess. I think, uh, would you put Donkey Kong above or below Kirby? Probably above. Really? Um, I think, I, I would think so. But I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say the opposite because um, as we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, the creator of Kirby Masahiro Sakurai was also the lead designer, director, meme lord of Super Smash Brothers. And with that being said, Kirby has always really been the centerpiece of a lot of the Smash games, whether you know it or not. Yeah. First first of all, you know, he he can copy everybody in the game. Uh, and in the most recent game, in the quest line, in like the main single story quest line. He's the only one that isn't killed in this certain event. Yeah, so you, but you, Super you, Smash Brothers is also made by HAL Laboratories, so I would also put my character as the main character of Super Smash if I made it too. I, I would be the main character of Super I think, Smash. But so, that's, that's what I'm saying. So if you kind of if you kind of use Super Smash Brothers to boost Kirby up, I would say I mean, let's let's be real. Um But it, of, I mean also compare like but Donkey Kong is in every other Mario game. Like, where's Kirby and and Mario Kart? Where's Kirby and Mario Golf? I don't know if Donkey Kong's in Mario Golf. I don't play that game, but I assume he is. Yes. Right? Like, I think I would say Donkey Kong's probably a little bit more widely known. Okay. 
Uh, yeah, not the dis the Kirby, not the dis no. the twelve Kirby fans that are listening, but <laughs> no, <laughs> I'll I, I send think, you my address. No, that's fine. Me. Maybe maybe we'll put a poll up on our social media about which is a higher franchise in your opinion, Kirby or Donkey Kong. And to be fair, actually, sir, glasses pushed up. Um, Kirby wasn't originally a Nintendo franchise. They essentially subsidized Hell Laboratories. It's still, uh, I, I don't know if it's technically an independent publisher now, but. Um, it still is counted as Hell Laboratories. It's not like Donkey Kong is Nintendo. Donkey Kong is 100% Nintendo. Mario, Zelda, 100% Nintendo. Kirby was kind of acquired in a way. Is it kind of like Pokemon, where like Nantech? Yeah, still exactly, owns it? exactly. Sure. It's it's you know Pokemon's its own entity, but it's still very much Nintendo. Um, but anyway, let's look at let's let's go back to the fast food thing here. So we got Mario. We got let's do Zelda. Um, Mario's McDonald's. Yeah, 100%. He's the corporate entity. He's the yes. face of of it. Here's the so thing, that leaves Zelda is the one I'm struggling with. So Zelda, okay. Uh, let's let me just throw up some options to bounce past you. White Castle? No. No. Okay. Um, is it Burger? I don't think it's Burger King. No, because there's a thing about Legend of Zelda. No one hates Legend of Zelda. Everyone is loves Legend. Is it like? It's not 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 um uh, like bur- like a brachos or a chipotle. Here's everyone kind of everyone kind of likes it, but at the same time, like there's there's some some thing some parts about it that just make you want to like. Yes, language like the please. water like the water level. <laughs> here, hear come me at out. me, bro. Hear me out. Hear me out. So for me, Legend of Zelda series is Olive Garden. I no, because I don't like Olive Garden. Ooh, dang! I guess we're at an impasse here. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, we we are. This is our but friendship test. When you're when you're there, your family though. <laughs> Vin Diesel works then, at Olive Garden. <laughs> what, what would Legend of Zelda be as a fast food place then? Cul- like, not a, a, Culver's, but like Culver's isn't like uh, it's not nationwide. It's a pretty Wisconsin thing. Is it? Is it Taco Bell? Oh God, no! It might be. It might be Taco Bell. It might be the Taco Bell. No, because I don't know. Some, when I some think of Taco Bell, I feel like it's dirty. Yeah, I don't get dirty from. I, Chick- I'm Chick Fil A. White women and Uggs don't play Legend of Zelda. Oh man, this is a tough one. I I hold I hold hard with Chipotle. Yeah, I could see them being like a Chipotle like, or like an Applebee's. Like, Applebee's. Oh man, this is tough. Might, well, yeah, yeah, it might. Some be people an laugh. Applebee's. Some people laugh at Applebee's though. That's the thing. I, I yeah, me. I, I would go with, like, whatever regional Tex-Mex restaurant is where you live, right? Like, everyone kind of likes it. You know, like, it's for those people that think that they are that they like uh, other cultures' food, um, but really just want to dip their toe in. So Perkins. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> like Perkins. It's like... I don't know. It's like I, think... like I kind of like fantasy games, but, like, I don't want to play Dungeons & Dragons. Okay, so let's 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 before we conclude this because we could talk about four hours about this arguing. Right, let's, oh, are let's, we not going to? No, let's break down the the aspects of Legend of Zelda. Okay, it's all of them are these sweeping epic fantasy stories. Silent protagonist saves good and evil. Uh, you know, battle of good and evil saves a princess. So it has all of these really common tropes, but does them in very unique ways. So what is the type of food that is really common but is done in a unique way that is very favorable? Pizza. Pizza Hut. You can. There's no, not Pizza Hut, but it is. It is 
your local favorite pizza place? We have to there's, do chains. There's no, there's no getting around this. Dang it, Reed. I'm trying to be smarter than you and it's not working. Pie five. <laughs> Little Caesars. Chicago, pie five. No, because it's not hot already. Is it Domino's? <laughs> no, because Domino's is greasy. <laughs> I bet Link's hair is greasy. Papa John's. Papa John's. Papa Murphy's. Let's settle on some sort of Papa. The day of reckoning is coming. Uh, so we, I think we can settle. We'll, we'll maybe again. We'll put up as we'll put up two polls. We'll put up is Kirby higher in the totem pole of Nintendo than Donkey Kong, and what pizza place is Legend of Zelda? Um, because yes, everyone loves pizza, and there's a lot of different ways to top it. No one dislikes pizza. That's yeah, and so, you can get pretty creative with pizza. Yeah, just like Ice a lot of the Zelda pizza, games. Fruit pizza. Yeah. Seen it all. I've lived so, your life. I think we'd have to kind of debate it, and we'd have to get some 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 uh, swords drawn. Um, new podcast. New podcast. Legends of pizza. Legend, Legend of pizza. Of pizza. <laughs> That's the, the name of the Oracle podcast. Of the or <laughs> the Ocarina of Marinara. <laughs> God. Uh, Papa Murphy's mask. Uh, <laughs> Dave, I like how this Kirby podcast turned into pizza cast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so jumping back to Kirby, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed our little tangent on <laughs> fast food restaurants. But uh, of course, Kirby is the Wendy's. Um, I don't even know what is Wendy's slogan. Like, it's not. It's not. I'm loving it. That's McDonald's. that's McDonald's. What is Wendy's slogan? Hot. Shut and ready. up and eat the food. Shut up and eat the food. We're not open. <laughs> <laughs> we burnt down. Yeah. <laughs> when the Wendy's company slogan. You know when it's real. Just like Kirby. Introduced in 2010. All right. So as you guys saw with these Kirby games, we didn't really um, jump into the side spinoff games. There's like Kirby's Avalanche and Kirby's Brick Break and Tilt and Tumble. You know, with a lot of these games, unless there's really some plot points that jump out to us, we're really going to typically stay with the mainline series. Maybe jump into the, the anime if there's an anime or a cartoon. But as you can sort of see, we're really just kind of focusing on the, the the games here. Looking at, just to kind of conclude things, looking at the themes of this game, I don't know if there's any necessarily theme. It's just like this, this battle of good versus evil, but not even good, but just like sweet versus bad. Because so much of Kirby is based on food uh, and, and just enjoying life. It's just this very, the sense of preserving innocence kind of jumps out at me. And um, I think that's the biggest theme that I can kind of get away from these Kirby games is just protecting your friends, protecting your world, but doing it in a really fun and endearing fashion. I don't know. That's my major theme takeaway. I mean, I think if you dig real deep, you can uh, also look at sort of the, the this idea that just because people might have differing opinions or differing goals, that not everyone's just pure evil. If you really want to stretch... Yeah, I mean, no, you, look at yeah. King, you, know, you look at King Didi, like, he, he is obviously an antagonist, but at the same time, like, he is, there is something worse than him, and, you know, if you're able to put aside some of those those issues and differences, you might even find an ally. That is true. Uh, anything else you want to throw in with Kirby before we conclude? And again, this is just the 8 through 16-bit mainline series. We can definitely um, probably jump into this again, because I think we both had a really good time talking about this. 
No, I think I'm done talking about this in particular. I would like to come back and maybe revisit some of the newer stuff. I think as a whole, podcast-wise, at least in this initial bout of looking at some of these older games, we're going to try to stick to the originals and just kind of build their stories up slowly. And then I would also like to come back and revisit them and do some deep dives where maybe we don't even talk about any game in particular, but just look at the lore. But for now, I think we're going to kind of work our way up through some of these old classic games, um, games that really speak to us and then go from there so that's really the goal ladies and gentlemen so that being said we appreciate you coming on this as as the podcast recording looks relatively long journey but that's okay um so as always uh check us out we're on all over social media we have Linktree now um we're on instagram page to pixel podcast twitter facebook we're all over the place we really do appreciate you guys listening you know it's we're still getting our you know in the takeoff phase of this whole thing but, you know, I've, I've been receiving comments and stuff from friends and people that I know, you know, admiring the podcast. So I really do appreciate you guys sharing this with whoever, you know, likes gaming, likes laughing, whatever you're into. Um, so, yeah, Jeremy, if you want to send us off with a little bit of words of wisdom. There's no problem too big that you can't eat. That's that's definitely true. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we'll see you next time. Have a great night.